to the Weird Warriors podcast. I am Max. I am Rich. And on this podcast, we will be focusing on the Weird War Tales comic book series published by DC Comics from 1971 to 1983. And on this episode, we'll be taking a look at a giant-sized issue of Weird War Tales, number 36, an anniversary issue, a clip show, a beast of a comic book. So before we get going, Rich, we'll hit you with some non-retroactive history. I believe it was in episode zero when Max gently mocked the whole concept of challenge coins that the military gives its members as an unofficial attaboy for a job well done. Well, yours truly earned another one back in December for having the most squared away dress uniform in my platoon. Scary, right? Photos of the album. Bow before me! But on to more important things. The episode covering the reprint issue of WWT celebrating some of its the series' best stories is the best place to make the formal announcement covering voting for the Intel Report title you want us to cover in an upcoming special mission episode of the show, especially since it was about a year ago from the date of this episode that the first one appeared. Including this episode's report, we will attempt to create a poll on the FB page covering all titles we've covered over the last year, if we are technologically apt, and by we, I mean me, and fail to do so, I'll simply make a who do you want post with the list of titles. It starts today, and the polls are open for two weeks next show release, and the winner will be announced on the FB page. Will it be the Honda Tank, Sergeant Rock and the Army of the Dead, Archie 1941, or Junkyard Joe? a six-issue miniseries by Image Comics, released in October 2022, written by Jeff Johns, art by Gary Frank. The world knows Junkyard Joe from the comic strip by recently retired cartoonist Muddy Davis, but the truth stretches back to the Vietnam War. It was there that the tragedies of combat and visions of a strange robot soldier that saved his life still haunt him. However, Dreams become reality when Joe mysteriously shows up on Muddy's doorstep, warning of a new and an impending war. Yeah, we're all thinking the same thing. GI robot. Only this one's origin is in Vietnam, not World War II. <laughs> like it matters. I'm in. And two, for sure. And I guess all of you out there are in as well. But for a second, we're going to have you step out and listen to this podcast promo break for another awesome show. When we get back... We'll dive right in to Weird War Tales number 36. Dr. Fate. Dr. Midnight. Starman. Johnny Quick. Wildcat. Power Girl. The All-Star Squadron. Spectre. Firebrand. Amazing Man. Huntress. Cyclone. Sandman. Mr. Terrestrial. Commander Steel. Seven Soldiers of Liberty. Liberty Infinity Incorporated. Those are just some of the celebrated and beloved heroes associated with Earth 2 and the Justice Society of America. These daring mystery men and women banded together in 1940 to form the first super team in comics. They inspired a decades-long legacy of heroes who would follow in their footsteps, and now they've inspired us to launch a new podcast. Justice Society presents a new anthology on the Fire and Water Podcast Network featuring a variety of theme shows with different hosts celebrating some of their favorite comics and characters associated with the Golden Age of Comics, Earth 2, the JSA, and beyond. Join the fight for justice and subscribe to Justice Society Presents on the Fire and Water Podcast Network. And we're back. So, 
As I promised before the promo and at the top, we're going to take a look at Weird War Tales number 36. So Rich is here to hit you with the giant size cover detail. There's a Weird War Tales 50 cent giant banner along the top with the head of death and a U.S. helmet grinning out at you. The main WWT title is in red over a blue sky. Art by Joe Kubert. A towering Neanderthal swings a stone axe through the rifle a desperate GI is using to try to parry the blow. In the background, a crowd of Neanderthals watches in a jungle setting with what used to be called a Brontosaurus also watching off to one side. Cover date, April 1975. Date of release, January 16th, 1975. Killjoy, we all know this one. No cavemen with dinosaurs. Comments and commendations. The return of Kubert to Weird War Tales. Long overdue. Joe is no doubt channeling his inner tour here, which perhaps not coincidentally has a full page ad inside the comic. His inks on the background cavemen are really heavy, but I'm so happy to have Joe back. I'm not going to whine too much. Solid cover. A bit reminiscent of the cover of issue 18. All right, Rich isn't going to whine too much, but I am. Big surprise. Uh, this cover actually felt a little flat to me. I know, heresy, but I got to say, it just doesn't feel all that exciting or dynamic to look at. The events on display here should feel tense and visceral, but they kind of feel like a dress rehearsal instead. I've grown used to LD's dramatic pieces on most of the covers of this series, and this one feels a bit phoned in, especially for Joe Kubert. So I'm going to duck behind a rock and hide from the slings and arrows out there and let Rich take y'all into the first original story in this giant-sized issue. Escape, seven pages, script by Bob Connor, pencils by Mike Sikowski, inks by Bill Drought. Steve Talbot is trapped flat on his back with an empty weapon and two SS troops bearing down on him one with a jagged bayonet ready to tear out his throat. Time slows down, and Talbot's desperation to escape death is so frenzied that he feels himself splitting in half. His astral body floats away and occupies that of the second SS soldier. Astral figures squeeze the trigger and gun down the stunned trooper with the bayonet. The shocked second soldier can't control his own hands as Talbot turns the MP40 on himself and opens fire. Amazed, Talbot's astral form drifts out of the slain enemy and back into his own body. I'm alive! I've got it made! The enemy can't kill me! Soon, two of Talbot's buddies arrive, and he tells Vic the whole story. Vic immediately tells Talbot to shut up. If a medic hears you, he'll tag you with a Section 8. Everyone sees crazy things in a war, but they don't talk about it. Days pass, and the fighting continues. Talbot begins to wonder if he didn't imagine it all. Occupying Meat Grinder Hill, the Germans launch a counterattack on the thinly held American lines. The only chance the Americans have to hold is for the Germans to come straight at them. If they're outflanked, the Germans will roll them over. Talbot volunteers to recon the enemy intentions and is given the password Adolf. He quickly discovers that the Germans are, indeed, going for the flanks, and in his desperation to do something, his astral body tears loose again. Occupying the body of the German officer commanding the panzer leading the attack, Talbot watches as an enemy shell destroys the observation post holding his body. Now trapped forever in the body of a German officer, Talbot's spirit orders the attack to head into the heart of the U.S. defenses. 
The Americans repulse the German attack, and Talbot screams at them to not shoot. Adolf! Adolf! But he's gunned down in the hatch of the Panzer. As Talbot dies, some nearby GIs are shocked to hear the German whispering the password. How'd he know? Another American laughs. Probably just curse of the Nazi number one brass that Sig Heiled him into ending up in the meat grinder. Adolf Hitler. Take a lesson from Steve Talbot. No matter where you hide, there's no escape from death as long as you're on the battlefields of Weird War. All right, no killjoy this time around, and we thank Rod for uh, coming in and finishing that up for us, as always. Good to hear him come back to the show. Comments and commendations on this story. I'll start it and say that, yes, folks, as Rich will mention, the dead man parallels abound in this story, except at least at first, this guy still had his own body around to return to. As for the story itself, it was cooking along just fine until the hurry up, we're out of pages ending. Why was Adolf the secret password for an operation against the Nazis? Uh, it's a fun enough opener uh, with good art throughout and for spotlights, I'll call out page three, panel four, where a guy is being shot in the back, but looking for all the world like he's asking his date just what the heck it is they think they're doing back there. Again, not an effective drawing, but it amused the heck out of me. And I'll say, as Rich called out with the nice death metal voice there, page five, where we get treated to the name of Meat Grinder Hill. Delicious. I, I had a lot of fun with this one, even though I thought... The ending was a little clumsy, but that's not the first time that's happened in this series or any other anthology. Yeah, this this is a fun story about the futility of attempting to cheat death. As Max alluded to, insert your dead man comparisons wherever you want. Page three, panel two of Talbot's astral form occupying the second German's body is cool. The way the Nazi's helmet's shadow covers up his eyes so you get the two eyeballs angrily peering out at you. And page five panels one through three of Talbot musing to himself as he fires his Thompson closer and closer to the reader reminds me of the classic DC war books of the 50s. Indeed. Now, as we mentioned, this is a giant-sized special issue so we've got some reprints alternating with some original stories here and reprints from previous issues of weird war tales like this one which was the first original story printed in weird war tales and is the first reprint of this issue it's a classic we all know as the moon is the murderer if you don't remember it's four pages long it's got a script by bob Coniger. Art by Frank Thorne, originally printed in Weird War Tales number two, which we originally discussed on May 19th, 2021. We've been doing this for that long. Start at the 16 minute, 55 second mark of that episode. It goes right into Deathgram at 2625. Rich did the research there, people. As for the synopsis, we'll give you a quick, for all the reprinted stories, a quick one, two, three synopsis. And this one goes like this. A GI and a German go out on solo patrols into World War I's no man's. When the hunting German is backlit by a rising moon, the American shoots him. Boom, the end, one, two, three, just like we said. But Rich wants to remind you of some killjoy here. Yep, as we all know, no pickle help helmets by the time the Americans entered the war. 
but a German carrying a captured Lewis gun as a weapon is plausible. Comments and commendations. All of our panel callouts from the original episode are in the album. So the first original story in WWT is the first to be reprinted. Great silent story, but for the sound effects. The skeletal ribcage of a horse on page one is probably the best detail in the whole damn thing. Also, throughout the book, where there had been make war no more at the end of the story, now there is only the end. This is the end. My only friend. This one comes full circle, and I love the symmetry here, as we've said. First original, first reprint now. I still love this story. In fact... Even though the opening tale in this issue wasn't all that bad, this one looks so good by comparison that it really just drives its pedigree home. It was a winner then, it's a winner now, it's a winner forever. So, since I did a little reprint here, and there's another special reprint coming up, I'll take the next full-length story in the issue because I should really let Rich have this next reprint Um you know, for reasons. So the next full-length story in the issue is called The 13th Man. It's six pages long. Script is by Jack Olek. Art is by Ruben Yandok. Synopsis for this tale goes like this. It's April 1944. John Chandler's screaming nightmare ends when another crewman of the destroyer USS Monaghan wakes him up. He was getting tired of Chandler's bad dreams but the other crewmen were more sympathetic. Chandler had been the only survivor of a sunken sub after all, the USS Porpoise. Suddenly, the klaxon sounds, two enemy aircraft approaching. The ship's gunners shoot one Nazi down, but the other plane scores hits on the destroyer. As the German flies off, the Monaghan limps into a nearby cove for emergency repairs. Chandler recognizes the cove and is horrified. He runs to the bridge to beg the captain to turn back. Twelve dead men are waiting for him in that cove. The captain is puzzled, so Chandler tells him the whole story. Two years ago, the porpoise had taken refuge in the same cove to make emergency repairs. The captain sent everyone ashore except for a 13-man repair crew. But before any repairs were made, Five Stuka dive bombers swept in. Unable to dive, the crew fought back with deck guns and small arms. Chandler knew that they didn't have a chance and dove over the side to save himself. The porpoise was hit and sank, taking the other 12 men with her. Swimming ashore, he'd reported to the other crew members that he'd been blown over the side. But the 12 dead men had been haunting his dreams ever since. They were still there, waiting. The captain is furious. He orders Chandler to be arrested, pending a court of inquiry. But at that moment, three German aircraft attack. The Monaghan opens fire as a bomb slams into her. Once again, John Chandler dives over the side, leaving his shipmates to their fate. But the destroyer is more heavily armed than the submarine and shoots down all three bombers. The captain turns to tell Chandler that they had been luckier than the porpoise had been and is puzzled to see where the seamen had gone. It was later assumed that Chandler had jumped over the side, reached shore, and vanished. Time passes and the war ends. 
pair of vacationing scuba divers that later discovered the wreck of the porpoise saw the skeletons on her deck and notified the authorities. Later, Navy divers photographed the wreck and make their final report. 13 skeletons were documented, which was odd because only 12 men had gone down with the sub. The divers pull one photo in particular out of the file and hand it to the commander. One skeleton wasn't lying flat on the deck with the others. In fact, it looked like it had been struggling to get to the surface, but the others had grabbed him and held him down. His dog tags read, John Chandler. He was back where he belonged, with the porpoise's skeleton crew. Hello, Killjoy History Minute. There have been six U.S. ships named Porpoise, and the last two were submarines. The SS-172 was an older sub, stationed in the Philippines when the war began, and would ultimately go on six patrols and sink three Japanese ships before being reassigned as a training vessel in September of 1943. She survived the war and was ultimately broken up for scrap. There's no record of a USS Monahan as spelled M-O-N-A-H-A-N, but there were two destroyers spelled Monahan, M-O-N-A-G-H-A-N. The last, DD-354, got underway during the attack on Pearl Harbor and sank a Japanese midget sub inside the harbor with depth charges. She would earn 12 battle stars during the war in such actions as Coral Sea, Midway, and the Philippine Sea, before foundering in Typhoon Cobra on December 18, 1944. Only six members of her crew of 250 were rescued. Man, don't mess with Typhoon Cobra, all right? Like, that's that's bad news. So, comments and commendations on this story. Uh, first of all, you know I'm a sucker for this, people. It was a great opening logo panel for this story. Loved it. Uh, yes, it's another survivor's guilt story, but not a bad one. You know, it's pretty good. I, I don't think we've seen Ruben Yandok too often around in these parts. But I wouldn't mind seeing his work more often, as the art here was pretty great, to my eyes anyway. You'd think the uh, details of our hapless protagonist's previous near-death experience would have been more widely reported than the command structure, since it was so obviously a trap even the first time it happened. As I said, though, I loved the art, so I'll throw out three spotlights here. Page two, panel two, the aerial shot, fantastically executed. Illusion of depth is perfect, and I'll get back to that with another one. Page four, panel one, with the assault on the porpoise. I love the lettering in that panel, too. Just goes for it. Tons of big sound effects, just adding to the image in the sense of chaos. That's what it's supposed to do. And then page five, panel five with the very interesting execution of perspective, again, used for the latter-day vacationing diver's discovery of the the downed, drowned, and the doomed. Uh, that's just an excellent panel, in my opinion, with the ripples in the water above and everything. It's th That had to be a hard one to figure out how to draw, but Yandok made it look effortless there. Revenge from beyond the grave, and another coward gets his. I really enjoyed the story, but Yandok had a couple issues with scale. The sub appears to have doubled in size between pages three and four if you compare the size of the sailors to the conning tower. 
And on page five, panel two, it looks like Chandler dove over the side of a battleship. The hull is so big. I've been aboard World War II era subs and destroyers because, of course, I have. <laughs> They're much smaller than portrayed here. Favorite panel is probably the obvious. Page six, panel five, where the skeleton crew is holding Chandler under. Hey, hey, where do you think you're going? Yeah, I mean, that is that, that is also, uh, the whole story was drawn well, again, in my opinion. So like I said, we're moving on to a reprint here, and I'm just going to let Rich dive right into it. I see what you did there. The Pool, six pages, script by Len Wein and Marv Wolfman, art by Russ Heath. Originally printed in Weird War Tales 3, which we originally discussed on June 2nd, 2021, start at the 1946 mark. We return to story at 4930. One, two, three, synopsis. 12,000 years apart, two groups of cavemen and a group of German and American soldiers fight to the death to control a desert oasis. Everyone dies, and the pool waits no killjoy because how could there be comments and commendations russ heath awesome the end again all of our panel call outs from the original are in the album for this episode because it's still so freaking awesome and we gave it the appropriate amount of love then that there's nothing to add so much like the band anthrax and their indisputably classic song i'm the man the pool will remain the hardest ever it's another winner and still champion this is one of the best comic book stories i've ever read period so only uh, seems fair that i should cover the next reprinted story almost to make up for my ecstatic high of getting to reread the pool and take a look at a lovely little reprint of a story called monsieur gravedigger sorry <laughs> it is eight pages long or is it script is by jerry defuccio art is by the awesome reed crandall uh, the story was originally printed in weird war tales number two which we originally discussed on may 19 2021 start at the 41 30 mark to begin the haunting that will follow you with this story. <laughs> One, two, three synopsis is a unit of the French Foreign Legion under the command of the inhuman Sergeant Major Loubet, known as Monsieur Gravedigger, battles desert raiders. Snitches get stitches, desertion plots, torture, action and intrigue. It's Beaugest. What is that? How did I say that? Uh, Bogeist, I, I just, I know it, it's a, I've never seen it. It's a classic, classic, classic uh, French Foreign Legion movie. Yeah, that, that was where I was going with that. So <laughs> I'm leaving that in there. Obviously, yeah. Rich wrote that part of the script. So uh, he says, uh, Rich wants people to find him Gary Cooper or Ronald Coleman, who must have been in some adaptation of one of those movies. And he found a way to make this. Revisiting of Mr. Gravedigger even more difficult for me than it should have been. So, you know, that's maybe, saying something, folks. As I said, maybe he gets a <laughs> challenge coin for that. I don't know what you do in your little clubhouse with your coins and whatnot. So, there's no killjoy. I'm going to run right into comments and commendations so I can try to shake off the curse. And I'll say, reading this story again made me feel like the main character in an Edgar Allan Poe story. Nice place. Classic, even. 
but I was also pretty sure that I was losing my mind. Or was I? What if that's what the story wanted me to think? What if by convincing me that I'm going mad, the story itself will become sane, even as I descend into the bottomless depths of insanity? How can I possibly know? From this day forward, may I read Monsieur Gravedigger nevermore. As stated earlier, all of our panel callouts from the original are in the album for this episode. In the process of reading about DeFuccio for his creator remembrance post that I put up on the Facebook page to mark the anniversary of his death, I learned that he'd done a lot of work in EC Comics. This story certainly has that EC vibe attached to it. That suggestion even got brought up in the podcast, so we were both obviously zeroed in. This is the only time DeFuccio or Crandall would appear in Weird War Tales. Yeah, as Max implies, this story haunted us both. It got brought up a couple of times in other episodes. Did we love it or hate it? Someone at DC obviously liked it. The fact it was selected to be one of the reprints here carries a weight all of its own. But as Max said, nevermore. All right. So we have another kind of full length original story coming up. And since I'm still recovering from from my gravedigger experience, we're going to let Rich tell you what it is. Bloody Halloween. Three pages, script by George Cashdan, art by E.R. Cruz. The mayor of a local town warned the colonel not to turn the castle into his headquarters because it was haunted by a sorcerer more evil than Dracula himself. The colonel laughs off the warning, and his staffers, Lieutenant Carp and Captain Lacey, get the idea of playing a prank on him. Scrounging up a vampire mask and a cape, Carp is to wait until midnight and surprise the colonel in his office as the others watch from the sidelines. Good thing the colonel has a sense of humor. Midnight, and the clock strikes 12. The colonel hears movement and looks up from his desk to see a vampire moving toward him. Who oh boy, where'd you clowns dig up that corny costume? Who's underneath it? Lacey or Carp, I bet. The vampire lunges for the colonel, who cries out, Whoa, whoever you are, don't play so rough. A joke's a joke, but down the hall, the other staffers hear the colonel scream and think Carp got carried away. Hurrying to intervene, they're shocked when a huge bat flies past them. But that's nothing compared to what they find when they reach the colonel. Puncture marks on his throat, and all of his blood had been drained. The colonel was dead. At that moment, Carp staggers in from a side room, still wearing the cape and holding the vampire mask. All right, who's the guy that knocked me out and why? And it happened right before midnight, just as he was about to go into his act. Killjoy, if this story took place in Transylvania, as implied, uh, American forces didn't get into Romania during the war. The protagonists here should either be German or Soviet. Comments and commendations. I first discovered E.R. Cruz's art in the big GI combat books in the 80s. There's always something about his style that I really like, so I'm glad to see him appear in the pages of Weird War Tales for the first time. That said, no panel lunges off the page at me in this story, but I like the detail on page one, panel four, the vertical stripe on the back of the helmet of the soldier talking to Captain Lacey. That tells anyone behind him in the field that the wearer is an officer. NCO helmets often had a horizontal stripe on back. Someone finally got indicia and like stuff like that right in one of these books. That's fantastic. So for my comments and commendations, I'll say, Skull Witch! Skull Witch! It must already be the name of some heavy metal band out there. And it's the, the look of the host 
in the opening panel of this story. So I, I was a fan right there. But as nice as the art is, and as cool as the idea of a skull witch might be, the story is a three-page rimshot hardly worthy of being the plot of a lesser Scooby-Doo episode. I gotta say, the original content so far isn't standing up all that well against the reprint material here. So we're gonna take a break from any of the uh, reprinted or original story content and move on over to check the mailbag in the APO Weird War Tales section. As opposed to a lot of issues we've covered lately, in this giant size special, the Weird War Tales letters page is two full pages long, and there's a bit of a celebration going on in here. So the letter column starts off with the same awesome header art, and there's a couple of intro paragraphs that I want to read for you. They go like this. For the past year, not a month has passed without a request for a super spectacular issue of Weird War Tales, reaching our desk from one reader or another. We hemmed, hawed, and stalled because we felt that Weird War Tales was too young a magazine to cull a hundred pages of good reprints, and there were very few stories from other magazines that would have fit in. But here, you're faced with a giant issue where we said there wouldn't be one. It's obviously time for an explanation. You'll note that this isn't a 100-page super spectacular, which was something DC did all the time back then. Due to rising paper prices, sound familiar, and a few other factors, the 100-page comic has vanished, along with the bison and other mammoth creatures. That's a downer. <laughs> and it's a hell of a lot easier to fill a half a 64-page magazine with reprints than it is to fill most of a super spec. That's the long and the short of it. We wanted to wait until we could do a giant we were proud of. We did, and we are. Let us know how you like it. Now, what people also let the editors know what they liked were some previous issues covered in the letters in this column. I'm going with my spotlighted letter, a missive from one Mark Schmeider or Schmeider of Concord, Massachusetts. I'll say at the top here, I was tempted by a letter from someone named Hank Williams, but I figured it wasn't the guy I was thinking of. So Mark Schmeider starts his letter off saying, Dear Joe, I've got to take issue with your nonsense about Luis Dominguez cover art on every issue supplying continuity. Sure. DC has always kept a house look by using a select group of artists on their covers, but before Luis came along, that continuity was contributed by talents such as Mike Kaluta, Neil Adams, Bernie Wrightson, Dick Giordano, Joe Kubert, and Murphy Anderson. Now it's Luis, Nick Cardi, and Joe Kubert. There was plenty of continuity before, but now it's just repetition. Now that I've aired my main gripe, on to the good side. Recently, most of the comics you edit have had a sudden return to good art. Bill Drought has been absent, or nearly absent, for too long. Thank you for bringing him back. Now let's see if you can do the same for Mike Sikowski. Well, just wait, buddy. It's uh, Mark Schmieder of Concord, Massachusetts, and the editorial response to this is, again, more diplomatic than I would have been. goes like this. While all the people you name have done covers for DC, at any one time, any specific magazine tends to have all of its covers drawn by one artist. That's the continuity we were talking about, not the house image. 
We may change that occasionally or switch artists, but we remain believers in giving each magazine a distinctive look, a sure way to catch readers at the newsstand. Yeah, that Mark just wasn't paying attention. I don't know if he just doesn't like Luis or what, but most series back then kept the same cover artist for as long as they possibly could. And yeah, there was a stable of people they could rely on to do covers across the board. But again, we, we've got Joe Orlando here who's much nicer than me and provides a perfectly explanatory answer. So there we go. My letter comes from Robert Greenberger from Jericho, New York. Dear Joe, I hope you follow some of Linus Sabala's suggestions. They would make the mag far more interesting than it now is. I'm tired of World War I and II, Vietnam, and earlier period stories. Go way back and let's see Indian Wars, Chinese Wars, Norse gods in battle, etc. This magazine had great potential when it started out. Let's see you fulfill some of it. Maybe even do a Viking era story heralding the return of the Viking prince. Well, this guy obviously didn't remember that one story where, you know, Loki shows up and all the survivors were battling that witch on that shipwrecked island and everything. So it has been done. Pick up some back issues, man. And Joe responds with, the Viking prince is a is Joe Kubert's character. And if he shows up anywhere, it would be in a Kubert edited mag. But a Viking era story is a good thought. But like it's just said, they already did one. So, yeah, in all honesty... I selected this letter because we just did our next five special mission with the Viking Commando, and I couldn't resist. The APO Weird War Tales letters page ends with a couple of paragraphs called The Story Behind the Story of Weird War Tales. And it goes a little something like this. Since Weird War rarely gets enough mail for us to be picky about our single-page columns, we've got quite a bit of space left over with this month's two-page arena. Since this is our first, and only, giant, we're going to make use of this freedom to look back at the beginnings of WWT. Few fans know it, but this issue really brings Weird War Tales full circle. At the beginning, Weird War Tales was not going to be a magazine of its own, just two issues of the Super DC Giant reprint series, which was then running. Editor Joe Kubert assembled a collection of classics and added a new introduction and a short story relating to the cover. But then Super DC Giant was canceled, and WWT was put on the schedule as a regular bi-monthly. Caught unprepared, the magazine was launched with its very heavy reprint content. It took Hubert several issues to get into the swing of doing new stories for this very different mag, and the output was low, although very good, as shown by the stories reprinted in this issue. Hubert eventually gave up all of his war mags, except for his beloved Our Army at War with Sergeant Rock, and Weird War Tales came our way. The reprints were eliminated, and a monthly frequency assumed, and here we are today. Happy, except for the fact we've never been able to inspire much reader comment on WWT. And then he just goes into the usual, please write, give me a paragraph after that. <laughs> so. That's kind of always been a mystery to me that this this book didn't receive a lot of letter writing back in the day. The, the ones they get in are quite opinionated and entertaining, so that's cool. But... <laughs> That being said, just it's odd what people will write into and what they won't write into. I've always been kind of confused by that one. So speaking of things I'm confused by, I'm, I'm going to take a little break to add a little note here before I cover the next reprint story. Give myself a little bit of a sanctuary and say, I think that the Robert Greenberger, the Bob Greenberger letter that you read would probably be from 
Robert Bob Greenberger from his Wikipedia entry here, born July 24, 1958, an American writer and editor known for his work on Comic Scene, Starlog, Weekly World News, and Hellboy 2. And for executive positions, he held at both Marvel Comics and DC Comics. So I am connected to Bob Greenberger on social media and stuff like that. I'm pretty sure that letter was from him. So that's just, you know, cool little bit of seeing a pseudo famous person in the industry pop up in a letters column. So I can put it off no longer. I have to cover the next original story. It's not, and it's not, oh, it is a reprint, but it's not a reprint from Weird War Tales. And I'm procrastinating again. It's called The Day After Doomsday. It's two pages long. Script is by Len Wein, who can do better. Art is by Jack Sparling, who I could say the same about. It was originally printed in House of Secrets 86 from June, July 1970, so not that far back from the release of this issue. The synopsis of this two-page story goes a little something like this. A week after the bombs fell, the last man on Earth dragged himself out from under the rubble. Walking down the street lamenting the fate of mankind, he's shocked when a bullet just misses his head and strikes the wall beside him. Diving for cover, he's further amazed that it's a woman firing at him. He calls out to her to stop shooting so they can talk, and she does, although she keeps him covered as he approaches. He convinces her that if she kills him, mankind will die with him. She surrenders the weapon, admitting that she couldn't do it. Introductions are in order. His name is Adam. Hers is Gertrude. And they walk off into the sunset. There's no killjoy. Rich, put me out of my misery. <laughs> yeah, glad to see sexism survive Doomsday. Why don't you just hand the gun here? Good girl. Page two, panel four specifically. Or am I reading too much into it? Blonde, blue-eyed, only wearing pants. Because of course he is. And not a mark on either of them. Got to say, the last panel of Adam and Gertrude walking hand in hand into the sunset, happily ever after, is a bit jarring. Happily ever after. Right after she was trying to kill him. Or until they both die of radiation poisoning in a week and a half. Welcome back. Waste of space. D.A.D. Dud of the issue. <laughs> Goddamn day after freaking doomsday does it again. Where's my shrunken farmers getting eaten by their own chickens when we need them? I'm taking a break and I'm going to let Rich take you into a much better story here. It, just a, a full lengther that is original to this issue. Please, Rich, make the pain go away. Colonel Clown isn't laughing anymore. Six pages. Script by Arnold Drake. Art by favorite of the show. Frank Robbins. Synopsis. One million Jews are penned in by Nazi steel in the ghetto of Warsaw, shut off from the outside world. Despite that, a crude parody of human warmth and humor finds a way to survive in the form of underground nightclubs. Yusel and Rensky had performed before royalty before the war, but now he performs here as a clown, complete with orange wig, red ball nose, and oversized shoes. Impressions are his forte. Roosters and ducks are easy, but his greatest impression is that of Adolf Hitler. Holding a simple pocket comb under his nose, he does the Nazi salute and launches into his tirade. 
Yah, seek higher. I am the Fuhrer, and there is no one Fuhrer as furious me. Yah, I am the furious Fuhrer of the world. To keep the noise of their gleeful enthusiasm down, the Jewish audience drum their fingers on the tabletops in place of clapping. A sign on the wall reads, Club you sell, never a charge for laughter, but laughs softly. Der SS is listening. Indeed, at that very moment, Colonel Schroeder is getting a squad of soldiers together just outside to storm the club and arrest everyone they find. When they kick the door down and charge inside, Yussel stops the audience from fleeing. Don't run. That will only give them an excuse to shoot you. Schroeder slaps him. You are charged with crimes against the person of the Fuhrer. I hereby indict, convict, and condemn you to death. The sentence would be carried out on site immediately. Given the chance to say a few last words, Yussel only crows like a rooster before being riddled by MP40s. Later, Yussel's costume props are delivered to Schroeder. He looks forward to sending them to Hitler as proof the Jew clown was dead. The phone on his desk rings. Schroeder is infuriated to hear that one of the German informers is warning of a Jewish uprising in the ghetto. Nonsense. They wouldn't dare. Hanging up, he notices his orderly laughing at him and wonders why. Somehow, the red clown nose had appeared on his face. Hours later, his phone rings again. Fighting had broken out in the ghetto. Running into his bathroom to wash, when he looks in the mirror, he's amazed to see the clown wig on his head. Throwing it aside, he finishes dressing, only to realize he's now wearing the oversized clown shoes. Disposing of them, he orders the props to be burned at once. This grotesque parody must stop. But the fight in the ghetto had only begun. For a month, tanks and stukas battled against Molotov cocktails and small arms. But there was only one way this was going to end. Walking through the ruins of the ghetto after the fighting ceased, a visiting general tells Schroeder that the Fuhrer was coming tomorrow to honor the heroes of the campaign. And Schroeder is one of them. I appreciate that, General. I certainly do. He cries. General spins. What's that? My hearing's not what it used to be. N nothing, mein General, Schroeder stammers. That night, he takes two sleeping pills to combat the stress of the campaign and wakes up the next morning feeling better than he had in a month. Later, as Hitler approaches, the general whispers at Schroeder to get his hands out of his pockets. Mein Gibraltar Führer, that's German for beloved, by the way, I present the great hero of our ghetto campaign, Colonel Schroeder, but Schroeder interrupts him, whipping a comb out of his pocket and holding it under his nose. Nein, I am the Führer. There is no Führer as furious as me. Yeah, I am the furious Führer in the world. Heil! And salutes. Hitler goes berserk. Shoot! Shoot him here and now. Let him be an example to all. Two MP40s mow the colonel down, and what appears to be a red ball rolls out of his hands. Come, let us drum our fingers to show how much we appreciate Yussel's last performance. Killjoy, history minute. While I love page five, panel one, that stuka is going to crash in the ground about one second from now. Too low. The Warsaw Ghetto Uprising was the 1943 act of Jewish resistance in the Warsaw Ghetto in German-occupied Poland during World War II to oppose Nazi Germany's final effort to transport the remaining ghetto population to Majdanek and Treblinka death camps. After the Grossachpen Warsaw of summer 1942, in which more than a quarter of a million Jews were deported from the ghetto to Treblinka and murdered, the remaining Jews began to build bunkers and smuggle weapons and explosives into the ghetto. 
the left-wing Jewish combat organization and right-wing Jewish military union formed and began to train. A small resistance effort to another roundup in January 1943 was partially successful and spurred Polish resistance groups to support the Jews in earnest. The uprising started on 19 April when the ghetto refused to surrender to the police commander, SS Brigadefuhrer Jürgen Stroop, who ordered the burning of the ghetto block by block, ending on 16 May. A total of 13,000 Jews were killed, about half of them burnt alive or suffocated. German casualties were probably fewer than 150, with Stroop reporting 110 casualties, 17 dead, 93 wounded. 43,000 more Jews were shipped wholesale to Magdalene and Treblinka afterwards. The uprising was the largest single revolt by Jews during World War II. The Jews knew they couldn't win and that their survival was unlikely. Merrick Edelman, the only surviving uprising commander, said their inspiration to fight was not to allow the Germans alone to pick the time and place of our deaths. According to the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum, the uprising was one of the most significant occurrences in the history of the Jewish people. Joe Kubert's Yosel, April 19, 1943 graphic novel, covers the story in a way only Kubert could. And as a sidebar, I initially researched the wrong Warsaw uprising for this bit, and I'm not going to waste the effort. So a little over a year after the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising came the Warsaw Uprising, a major operation by the Polish underground resistance to liberate Warsaw from German occupation. It occurred in August and September of 1944, and was led by the Polish resistance home army. The uprising was timed to coincide with the retreat of German forces from Poland ahead of the Soviet advance. While approaching the eastern suburbs of the city, the Red Army temporarily halted combat operations, enabling the Germans to regroup and defeat the Polish resistance and destroy the city in retaliation. It's strongly believed Joseph Stalin ordered the halt so the obviously unruly Poles would be destroyed and not cause him future problems during the following Soviet occupation. The uprising was fought for 63 days of little outside support. It was the single largest military effort taken by any European resistance movement during World War II. Although the exact number of casualties is unknown, it's estimated that about 16,000 members of the Polish resistance were killed and about 6,000 badly wounded. In addition, between 150,000 and 200,000 Polish civilians died, mostly from mass executions. Jews being harbored by Poles were exposed by German house-to-house -house clearances and mass evictions of entire neighborhoods. German casualty figures varied widely from over 2,000 to 17,000 soldiers killed and missing. Together with earlier damage suffered in the 1939 invasion of Poland and the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising in 1943, over 85% of the city was destroyed by January 1945. SS Chief Heinrich Himmler is quoted as saying in the middle of the uprising, this is the fiercest of our battles since the start of the war. It compares to the street battles of Stalingrad. And this is where I end by reminding everyone that an estimated 6 million Poles, half of them Jewish, died during World War II. I'll say it again. Is it any wonder why the Poles are so invested in the war in Ukraine? Comments and commendations. Just like Survival of the, of the Fittest in Weird War Tales 27. Frank Robbins' portrayal of the main Nazi protagonist is spot on, craggy features and all. Page two, panel two, as the raid is about to commence, and page four, panel one, of him snarling into the phone when informed about the outbreak of fighting. Comedians have used a comb to mock Hitler since day one. No one will ever be able to sport that style of mustache again, and for good reason. I really like page two, panel one, where the audience drummed their fingers on the table in approval 
because it's quieter than clapping. And page six, panel three, where Schroeder looks more like Hitler than Hitler does. <laughs> Bit of bad news for Max, though. This story marks the last time that Frank Robbins appears in the pages of WWT. Well, first off, Rich, I, I want to thank you for the uh, the two big history minutes there. Those are fantastic. And it feels a little hard to move on to a somewhat lighthearted story about a clown's curse, but but I'm going to do it anyway. So a farewell to Frank, say it ain't so. Well, at least his art is typically great in these few pages. I liked the little touch of the orthodox prayer box tied to the host's skeletal head and the excellent opening logo panel, again, making me very happy. And of course, the page one panel three, Der Fuhrer shot, as well as the grim aftermath of the so-called magnificent victory on page five, panel two. Just, if he has to go out, he does it in Frank's Rob- Frank Robbins style. Everything in this looked cool to me. The utterly surreal curse of the clown in this story serves as just enough of a head-tilting twist to elevate the writing above what it could have been. It feels like kind of an odd PTSD acting on the murderous Nazi. You're not sure if this is supernatural or if he's doing this to himself because something in his mind snapped. That's kind of left up to you. I liked this one a lot better than the previous original stories collected in this issue, for sure. So, with another original tale out of the way, we're going to move on to another reprint from a previous issue of Weird War Tales. This one features our returning champion, (laughs) Joe Kubert. It's called Deathgram. It's two pages long, created entirely by Joe Kubert, originally printed as the cover story in Weird War Tales 2 as... Behind the Cover, which we originally discussed on the now oft-mentioned May 19, 2021 episode. As stated earlier, it starts at the 26-25 mark in that episode. The 1-2-3 synopsis goes like this. Judy wakes up from a nightmare in which Johnny is killed at the front. Her mother can't convince her it was just a dream. The doorbell rings, and it's Johnny! He'd been wounded and sent home. But before he'd left, he had swapped dog tags with a buddy for luck. He finds out his buddy was killed in action at the same time Judy had her dream. Killjoy! The best thing about going over stories we've already gone over is that it gives you the chance to catch things we didn't catch the first time. Granted, we were still playing with the format hard in the first few episodes, but I'm still surprised I didn't kill Joy the whole swapping dog tags for luck thing. There's a super obvious reason why that's frowned on, and I don't even have to say it because they all but say it here. Johnny gives his tags to Joe. Joe gets killed wearing Johnny's tags. Johnny's family erroneously gets told by the War Department that Johnny is dead. Don't put your loved ones through that. Comments and commendations, broken record. All panel call-outs from issue two are in the album. Hubert Awesome. This might actually be a true Weird War tale because something like this very well could have happened. Indeed. And since I dared cast dispersions on Kubert earlier, I'll heap some deserved praise on him here. 
I found this story pretty vapid the second time around. I think I did the first time too. But the art just makes it infinitely better than it otherwise could have been. This this is a gothic soap opera in panel form. It's all the drawings are incredibly good. So Joe, I'm sorry, but I'm giving you your props where they're deserved. Okay. So with that awesome reprint out of the way, and since we made Rich talk a lot on the last, uh, the previous original story, I'm going to take the final original tale, the final tale period in, in this issue. It is called The Deadly Seeds. It's three pages long. Script is by our buddy, George Cashdan, and art is by another buddy of ours, Alex Nino. Synopsis of this little tale goes like this. A three-man team of OSS agents parachutes behind enemy lines to capture a Nazi scientist. Dr. Klopfke, I'm leaving it as that, that's how I'm pronouncing it, is quickly found, and he's ordered to pack all his notes and come with them. But the doctor presses the alarm. A firefight with the guards erupts, and the Americans are forced to run but not before they lob grenades into the doctor's lab to destroy his project. Walking through the forest, they wonder what the doctor had been working on. I guess that's need to know, huh? Something to do with plants, probably. His lab had been loaded with them. Suddenly, vines like steel cables lash out and grab the three men. They're hoisted into the air and, brought, and are brought back to what appears to be a massive Venus flytrap. <laughs> Feed me, Seymour. <laughs> so uh, blood-curdling screams, lungs choking out their last breaths, and then silence. There's no killjoy. I'll hit you with the comments and commendations first here, so okay. Nino gets off to a strong start in page one, panel one, with the parachutes of the arriving soldiers looking like seeds falling from the plants in the foreground. Nice touch. However... After that, I got to say, the art feels sparse to me. And unlike Rich, I was almost pulled right out of page two, panel three, by the terribly amateurish-looking smears of red coloring in the gun bursts on display. The story was cool, even if the ending means that the experiment was already on the loose, so I guess the seeds of the next apocalypse have already been planted. Hmm? <laughs> Great having Nino back, though, even for a quick three-pager like this. The last three panels on page three of The Killer Plants are great, as is page two, panel three of The Firefight, where you see the doctor hiding under a table. I like that little detail, even if Max didn't like the muzzle flash. Probably one of the best shorts we had in this issue. And I will just go right on into the next little thing here, the Weird War Maze Activity. Script by Bob Rizakis. Based on cover art for Weird War Tales 28, which we originally discussed on October 5th, 2022, just a little while ago. Rosakis did a lot of these game puzzle pages in these books. This is actually a neat tie-in, considering the Americans were trying to escape from the island of Forgotten Warriors in that issue. Yeah, man, and someone found a use for that giant freaky-looking head from that cover. It's perfect. And I gotta say, Bob Rosakis, not only is he the answer man from all these comics back in the day, but you can rely on him for puzzles and games too. This reminded me of Marvel's short-lived Fun and Games series, which I enjoyed as a kid back in the day. It was a go-to comic for weekend camping trips. I'm, I'm not even sure how long it was around, 
but my brother and I had a blast with that series, and this sort of brought it right back for me. So the story and maze activity content out of the way here for this giant-sized issue. We're going to move on to our spotlighted ads, and Rich will kick it off. Yep. Build this seven-foot robot. Big 18 by 24-foot plans. Only $1. Very easy to make for a couple of dollars or less using scrap items. You make it walk and carry things because you are inside of it. Get your plans for this seven-foot monster plus our catalog. One dollar from Midland, Texas. Yeah, I kind of have to wonder if this is how Tony Stark got his start. And yeah, because Max goes all hog wild in his ad section, I went and found a second one. Indian Lincoln cents by the pound. Dated at least 30 years ago and back to the 1880s. One pound, $10. Sample sack of 25, $3. At $1 per pound, postage and handling. Mrs. Penny Fisher from Encino, California. Yeah, okay. I'm calling BS here. There's no freaking way that Penny Fisher is a real name in this situation. Did Penny Fisher go fishing for pennies to gather all these coins? Is that a name or a title? What's her husband's name? Bill Fold? Once again, it's these odd little it's these odd little ads providing a large measure of personal entertainment in this comic book. <laughs> yeah, man, those are two winners right there. I, I especially love that you went and found the uh, the Lincoln Sense by the pound. That that I, that can, my eyes glazed right over that, and I'm glad yours didn't because that's hilarious. So for my ads, as Rich mentioned, I go a little buck wild here, but I'll keep it quick for you. It's a giant-sized issue, so I'm making with a giant-sized selection of ads. In any other issue, I'd settle for breathlessly reading the Batman versus the Mummy Twinkies ad, which I'm going to breathlessly read anyway, so I'm not going to make it that quick for you. <laughs> the Twinkies ad, it's a full-page comic strip ad. You know how these go, people. It says, Batman and the Mummy, and you've got Batman and Robin on the scene, and Batman begins with, the mummy has captured the professor and his beautiful daughter. Great Cheops! They violated the tomb of his ancestors and he wants revenge. I'll roll this two-ton stone. They'll never get out alive. Even my special mummy ray gun won't stop him. Well, after all, you can't kill a mummy. Right, he's already dead. What'll we do? We've got to have a secret weapon. I've got it. What is it? We've got to act fast. We'll lure him away with an offer he can't resist. Seems I've heard that somewhere before. What's that? Mmm, delicious hostess Twinkies. I can't resist the moist sponge cake and creamy filling. Here he comes. I've been around for 2,000 years and I've never tasted anything so good. Now's our chance to escape. Let's go. Gee, thanks, Batman and Robin, for these delicious hostess Twinkies. You get a big delight in every bite of Hostess Twinkies. So, as I said, there we go. There's a breathless reading of the Twinkies ad out of the way. And in shorter form, I'll just look. There's some great ads in this issue. We also had an ad for Zinger's Toy Cars, an ad for some Robert Crumb ripoff T-shirts, brazen enough to call itself the natural trading company because you know the t-shirt that got ripped off from crumb was from his character mr natural so i thought that was especially bold and 
for my actual spotlighted ad because of cheating like crazy this time around. We had a full page ad for one of my favorite fantasy comic series of this era that, again, I found at garage sales and, and collected every issue I could find back in the day. And I've been recollecting it now. I just have such fond memories of it because it was so freaking strange. You had a barbarian hero, you know, basically Conan, who ends up swapping hands with a demon from another dimension. So he keeps a metal gauntlet on the one hand to keep his demonic impulses under control. And the full page ad just says, the entire world wants this man dead. Why? Thrill to the saga of Claw the Unconquered coming your way February 20th with a beautiful piece of collage-like artwork in the background featuring Claw and the supporting characters from the series and his big old web demonic hand at the base of it all. So I, I just had to say that that just jumped out at me because you never hear about that series anymore and you certainly don't see a full page ad for it in every book you look into. But I got to add. I have been recollecting and rereading those issues now, and I'm old enough to kind of notice how the women in the first several issues of that series are all evil. So, eh, eh, I didn't notice that when I was a little kid. But anyway, moving on, we're going to uh, jump away from the spotlighted ads and get to a section of our show we like to call Got Any Last Words? And my last words are... Quantity shouldn't trump quality, but in this case, it kind of does, especially since there are some truly high-quality old tales between these covers. I could echo Rich's choices below for the winners for sure. So I'll pick the runners-up as The Moon is the Murderer for the best reprint and The Thirteenth Man for the best original tale in this issue. We haven't had an issue this robust since the thick reprint issues started the run. 10 stories, even if four were stories we'd already covered. Pretty sure this is a one-off, and the title never had another giant issue after this one. This was a blast, though. It was fun rehashing some old stories and mixing in some new ones. Nothing can ever touch the pool for overall awesomeness. But I should probably select an original story for the official win, so giddy Colonel Clown. Yeah, indeed. I, I did really enjoy that one. Frank Robbins, baby! We'll miss you. I'll miss you a lot. So... Last words out of the way, we are going to take a spin on over to our own Dead Letter Office, where we take a look at listeners who stop by to say hi to us on social media, things like that. And I remind you to go to the WWPPX at redbubble.com, search for Weird Warriors Podcast, get our awesome logo designed and drawn by Bill Walco of the Hero Business, Put it on any freaking thing you can imagine and have it to hold for your own forever. Okay? So that, a little bit of hucksterism dealt with. We'll move on to social media visits. This time around, the social media dead letter office is focusing on Weird, Word, uh, Weird Warriors podcast number 37, which took a look at Weird War Tales issue number 32. And such luminaries stop by to say hey to us as Magazines and Monsters, a show run by our good friend Billy D, Lee Sullivan, the Earth 2 podcast, Herschel Memis, Tim DeForest of comicsradio.blogspot.com, Ranger Gord 
of the Prairie Justice, a Greg Sanders vigilante podcast, Clinton Robinson of Coffee and Comics, who Rich just did a show with that's coming out soon in this time period, and it will be in the past by the time this comes out. Hey, uh, the Earth 2 podcast account itself, our buddies at the Checkered Pass stopped by, Peter Watson, a few others. I got to mention, though, Rich also did some posts, uh, some other posts on the Facebook page, which he really kicks out a lot of cool stuff for you guys to, to check out on. He did a post about uh, Pearl Harbor and one about Snoopy versus the Red Baron, and more people stopped by to interact and say hey on those posts in particular. Uh, speaking of which, it was Michael Stewart from the Save for Half podcast, Rich Gallagher, Billy Dunleavy, Ken Boutillier, Dave Marchand, Ranger Gord again, Tim DeForest again, Lee Sullivan, Herschel Mimis, etc. So there's a lot going on on the Facebook page, people. I shut down the Twitter account because I'm shutting down my own Twitter account. But Rich is kicking out the jams on Facebook for you. So go over there. Have yourself an awesome time. So social media out of the way. We're going to move on to the Gmail account, weirdwarriorspodcast at gmail.com, where we got two emails from two of our, our good buddies here. I'll start it off with a letter from Jason Zeller the founder and sole owner of the Jason Zeller Binge Listener Award. <laughs> Jason says, hey guys, I really love covers like this. It definitely makes me think of the 1950s Marvel Comics monster covers. This one with a giant monster rampaging through the Germans. This alone would have made me pick this up as a kid. And he goes on to comment on the stories within. My Enemy of the Stars was an interesting story. One of my favorite panels was PFC Wilson creeping up the stairs with the Nazi soldier ready to pounce on him from the top of the stairs. The art was so well done I could feel the impact of the constellations pulverizing the German entourage. I especially liked where Orion pounded the tank <laughs> pounded the tank and truck into a pulp. I am glad this had an unexpected ending, which was very different from the story about the previous sergeant trying to avoid his fate from the tarot cards. But yes, as you guys said, definitely 1970s. Day After Doomsday was not much of a story, but like you guys, I really enjoyed the art. It also brought up again the common theme in which I have always wondered if rural areas outside of large cities would continue their life as normal, like this couple on a rural farm. I like the ending of the story that felt like a reversal of the 1950s sci-fi movies. In this case, instead of animals and insects growing larger, the people grew smaller due to the radiation, but still had the predictable result of people being terrorized by giant beasts. And Glutton for Punishment had very interesting faces on most of the characters. Did you guys notice the way panel after panel, the people had snarling teeth? The way the commander ended, he looked like a strange creature from Bernie Wrightson's Swamp Thing series. Very hard to look at. Yeah, it's the super grotesque image from that story. Uh, Jason says, I love the quote from the last story, Mission into Madness. These circuits are so complicated, simply destroying them would be too risky. My best hope is to reverse their feedback pattern. Instead of doing the obvious and easy thing, the soldier decided to do the impossible or MacGyver method. The panel really had me rolling. For the advertisements, I definitely thought of you, Max, on Duke, the super action dog. <laughs> Looks like comic books were included, too. You can't beat that. My favorite ad was close to the glutton story. It had a greedy, smiling man cranking out counterfeit bills. Laughed at the end where it claimed, you can spend it. Yeah, sure, if you want to go to jail. <laughs> so, uh, Jason asked Rich, in response to Rich, since you asked for the Twilight Zone reference, I had to try hard for this one. 
for the day after doomsday story, the only episode I could come up with was called four o'clock in which an evil manipulating self-righteous and prejudiced man plans on changing the whole world to miniature size. As you can probably predict at four o'clock, he is the only one who becomes small and his pet parrot thinks of him as food. Take care guys, Jason. Now Rich can read us the other missive we got from Mike Stewart of the Save for Half podcast. Hey, Warriors, just listen to Weird War, Weird Warriors 37. And as usual, I enjoy the show. I do have to agree with Max about the cover, though. After that description, I was expecting a Kaiju versus Nazi battle to end all battles. The constellations were fun, but not the same. Sigh. The only other comment regarding the show was about the ad for the Duke Dog and his gear. Thanks to Rich, after the Yo Joe line, I couldn't hear the ad without thinking it was referring to Duke from G.I. Joe, which, both my wife and I agree, makes the ad even funnier. You're welcome. As for helping Rich with Killjoys, I'd like to, but either he catches them first, or I can't bring myself to critique a, as a historian because, well, the rule of cool takes precedence. For example, the bombers on the cover would be flying way too low for a proper bombing run, but it looks cool, so it's a pass. Grin. Keep up the good work. Mike in Texas, save for half podcast. All right, on. Yeah, so Rich has no such mercies, so the killjoys keep coming hard and fast because, you know, he he just uh, can't hold back. Won't hold it's back. It's the title. It's the title. Yeah. I have to. I have Can't to be sure. <laughs> he has to. Yeah, I had to give him an outlet. Uh, that's one of the few things I had in mind for this show at the very start. I was like, I have to give Rich a special section where he can just unload <laughs> corrections and stuff onto the stories because we're going to need it. So there we go. A, a really cool dead letter office has come to a close. The episode's at an end here, people. And as usual, before we go, Rich is going to lift your spirits up, give you a little teaser for what's coming up next on the show. Weird War Tales 37. Normal size with a first of a kind full length battle tale. Tim DeForest, I'm looking at you. I remember what you did last year. Tune in next time, everyone, and see what he did. What could it be? <laughs> well, you're going to have to wait to find out. While you're waiting, we will continue to be the Weird Warriors. We'll continue to be the Battling Bros. This will continue to be the Weird Warriors podcast. And we will continue to make war. No more. No more.